Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection. Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. You should be at least a two-star admiral by now. Yet here you are. Captain. What is that? It's one of life's mysteries, sir. Top Gun is back. And in the sequel, it's not only Maverick that's the Top Gun. It's America, too. There is an unnamed geopolitical rival, but the US is still the world's leading power. And the secret to that power, according to Top Gun Maverick, is not the hypersonic weapons, but the people, the individuals piloting those planes. What's driving American power, according to this movie, is character. It's grit, agility, a bit of a maverick, a flawed, troubled, but ultimately caring person out on a journey for redemption. It's the American hero. Oh, but hold on a second. What was that? I'm watching the trailer, and Tom Cruise's character Maverick just put on the bomber jacket from the first movie, but this time, the Taiwanese flag patch on the back has been replaced with a weird red triangle. This is a film that oozes American confidence and military prowess. So why did the makers in Hollywood remove the Taiwanese flag from the patch on the jacket in the trailer? A lot of Top Gun fans and US politicians were asking this question too. They wanted to know if the movie makers were placating China's government. Because if the film was blocked from China's box office, the movie would lose a projected 100 million US dollars in revenue. Over the last decade, America's dream factory has been self-censoring movies according to China's Communist Party's regulations, taboos and tastes. Even in the last couple of years, when Washington has grown more suspicious of China's Communist Party as it's become increasingly authoritarian and powerful, Los Angeles has continued to be complicit with China's regime. Under mounting criticism about this tiny costume detail. A few weeks ago, the makers of Top Gun Maverick announced that the Taiwanese flag would be replaced on Tom Cruise's bomber jacket for the film's release. But that doesn't mean that Hollywood's acquiescence to China's Communist Party is over. I would resist putting too much 
on Tom Cruise's bomber jacket. Because I think that, yes, it appears as though the calculation was made that it was not worth changing the film in a way that would anger Americans for a market that was likely not going to let the movie in anyway. Because the Chinese box office has grown so inaccessible to major Hollywood releases, the calculation is a little trickier now. Um, do you do you make changes? Do you self-censor a film and potentially risk alienating audiences at home for a market that is not going to let you in anyway? Hollywood still banks on China, but it seems China doesn't need Hollywood as much as it did before. What had been something of a, of a marriage for 10 or 15 years an awkward one and certainly not a perfect one, but a marriage nonetheless, is now becoming more and more of a separation. And China's officials seem to be indicating that they do not feel that they need Hollywood films economically. Chinese audiences in their tastes have shown that they don't care for Hollywood films as much as they once did. one of the main and most popular channels of cultural expression in the West has rendered itself unable to critically examine the biggest story of our time, the rise of China. That's why there's no Hollywood movie about the Tiananmen Square massacre or the re-education camps in Xinjiang. There's no Hollywood movie about Falun Gong or about how the CCP crushed one of the largest ever protests in the world when two million people took to the streets for Hong Kong's freedom. And there's no likelihood of Hollywood making any of these movies anytime soon. I'm trying to understand why this is, what's at stake, and does it even matter? I'm Poppy Seabag Montefiore, and this is The Slow Newscast, Hollywood's cultural revolution. I want to know how did it all begin? How did the world's most powerful storyteller fall in love with the world's biggest box office and decide it was okay to let China's Communist Party call the shots. And I think I found the moment when the Hollywood-China romance caught a light and the person who helped make it happen. Anyone with an IQ of more than one would see the opportunity in China back then in the early 2000s. So, of course, I dove head first into it knowing that Yes, this was sort of a crazy turn of events in my life, but that it would pay off, and it did. So this is your first time in China, and I've been looking forward to coming here for a long time, and so this is uh, this is like a dream come true. This is Robert Downey Jr. It's his first time in China, and people are excited. He's at a press conference for the release of Iron Man 3. It's the first Hollywood red carpet premiere to take place in Beijing. And this is Chris Fenton, who made it happen. We decided to do the first live ever telecast of a Western Chinese or a Western film premiere. And we not only just did it live with a huge fanfare, but we actually shot it inside the Forbidden City. The organizing team needed barriers to protect Robert Downey Jr. when he walked down the red carpet. 
The team had built a wooden fence, but a few hours before the event was supposed to kick off, they realised that it was too flimsy and would collapse once the fans crowded in. The team didn't know how they were going to make it work until one person had an idea. To gather a thousand farmers from surrounding fields, buy each of them a cheap suit and ask them to create a human shield along the edge of the red carpet. They were so blown away by the scene themselves, they became part of the problem in the process. And then on top of it, in the Forbidden City, there's all these different plum trees and, and various other things. So we had lots of the fans that were climbing up in the trees and the trees hung over the red carpet and they were jumping off the trees onto people on the red carpet. It was quite chaotic. And ultimately, we did have somebody jump on top of him. Fortunately, his bodyguard was able to take the brunt of it, but it was chaos. And, um, you know, Robert rolled with it and it was a perfect example. I remember talking to the his publicist after, and she said, I can't wait until China figures out how to do this right and starts doing it the way that we expect them to. And I said, no, this is China. They're going to do it the way they want to, and we're going to have to live with that. (laughs) So my rise was far from perfect. It had a lot of falls and a lot of fails, right? And the Lehman moment was one that obviously... um, hit me very personally. I'm still pretty angry about it even today. And it also opened my eyes to the fact that our system has lots of flaws too. So it really opened my eyes to think about all the positives that occur on the China side and the positives of their form and system of government and how well it was working for the people there. That year, 2008, significant events converged around Chris in both the US, China, and in Hollywood. I mean, in the early 2000s, DVD sales were so robust that they really kept the lights on at a lot of studios. This is Eric Schwartzel, a journalist and writer in LA. He's written a book about Hollywood's relationship with China. Around 2008 or so, you know, because of the recession and because Netflix started shipping DVDs by mail, the sales just completely fell off a cliff. Chris had had his eye on China for a while. When I got involved, that was the early 2000s, China was still pre-adolescent as far as an economy was concerned. But they used to say the national bird was the crane, meaning the construction crane. Every time I went over there, you'd see a new building that wasn't there a few months prior. And you started to really notice, wow, all the projections of how big this country is going to be as far as market size, we're all starting to come true and maybe even going farther than what those projections were. So even in the early days, maybe the money wasn't that big, but you knew it was going to be huge. And in that year, 2008, Beijing hosted the Olympic Games. It was boom time. Here was China, a country of over 1 billion people with only 5,000 movie screens. China's Communist Party looked like it was opening more to the world. Chris saw the potential and was perfectly placed to be a China-Hollywood go-between. After some success bringing Hollywood movies like Looper to China, Chris saw the potential for Marvel. And he had his sights on Iron Man 3. Marvel held a focus group with toddlers where they gave them a bunch of toys and they noticed that 
the kids gravitated toward Iron Man. So they said, okay, we'll start with Iron Man. And arguably the most successful franchise in Hollywood history was born. When you looked at Marvel prior to uh, Iron Man 3, they had a real problem building the brand over there. There just wasn't much awareness of the Marvel characters. They were probably a little too pro-US or pro-West anyway. Um, So the highest grossing movie they had before we committed to Iron Man 3 was Iron Man 2, and it made roughly $20 million in that market, which wasn't a lot. Iron Man 3 ultimately did $20 million in its first opening day. So how did he do it? His idea was that bringing Chinese investment would help guarantee the film's acceptance into China's market and make it a success there. First, he had to convince Marvel to come on board with his plan. So Chris and his team at DMG Entertainment invited a Marvel exec to Beijing. And from the moment he touched down on the tarmac at the airport, a charm offensive began. Chris and DMG fast-tracked him through immigration to a fleet of cars driven by former PLA soldiers and F1 drivers. We would literally shut down the Forbidden City, which is probably the mecca of all things that somebody wants to see in their lifetime when it comes to China. We would kick out everybody that is there, and there's tourists. You can barely move through a lot of those courtyards during the day. We would have the police and soldiers shut down the outside of it, and then we would bring our VIP guests through there because we wanted them to feel the same way that an emperor walking through those empty corridors. Like We wanted them to experience pure silence in the middle of the busiest city in the world. So how did the Marvel exec respond? He was blown away by it. And he went back and reported that, you know, we sort of seemed to deliver on everything we said we could. And that's how the the deal moved forward. And the rest is history. But it wasn't quite as simple as that. There was still a lot to work out creatively, especially with China's censorship department. Anything that we thought was slightly sensitive was removed from the script or removed from the production as it happened. And on China's side, they wanted a Chinese character in the movie. Of course, not a villain, someone who saves the day. And Chris had the idea that it could be a fictional child of the soon-to-be China's Communist Party chairman, Xi Jinping. If you've seen the movie, there's a kid in the middle of the heartland of the United States of America who opens a shed and Iron Man's you know, glove flies out of there, finds Iron Man down in Florida and, you know, and that glove comes on and boom, the third act happens and it's very successful. We wanted that kid to be Chinese. And the reason we thought it would make a great Chinese character is that Xi Jinping lived in Iowa at one time and he was about to be, you know, essentially the head of China back when we were making the movies. And that would cause this movie to make a gazillion dollars because of it. Well, Marvel was wanted nothing to do with it. They thought that was heavy handed. That was like way too pushy of the Chinese government to even suggest that idea. But ultimately, they said, you know what, we're not going to give you that Chinese kid, but we're going to give you Dr. Wu. And he's a scientist that actually helps take the RT, that that device out of Iron Man's body without killing him. And that's going to be our character. And he's going to be in the movie for like roughly 60 seconds. It was this negotiation over how to get China's Communist Party's agenda or vision into the script that Fenton had to learn to master. I think the lesson that was taught to me by my Chinese colleagues was that there were two entities. In order to be a successful business in China, there were two entities you had to sell to. But the first one, if you weren't successful with, 
allowed you never to get to the second one. And the first one was the government. Chris believed in what he was doing. Of course, there were a handful of corporate greedy capitalists that were going to sell out the soul of America and the West in order to make a dollar in China. That happens in every industry with every market. But for the most part, a lot of us saw it as a great opportunity to further our careers and make a good living. The second thing was that the idea of getting, particularly my business, which is cultural, the more cultural products, things that had aspirational qualities of the West that got into that communist party, the more that those would influence the 1.4 billion people there to become more like us and more like us in the best version of that, which is the best version of democracy and, and freedoms and human rights and all that other kind of stuff. The assumption that Chris had, that many people had, was that trading with China would help bring democracy there. Chris could only get his products into China's market by adapting them to help boost the power and image of China's Communist Party. So if trade could only take place on those terms, then how could it bring about democracy? More likely, it would reinforce the status quo or further empower the one-party state. Meanwhile, back in those boardrooms with Chris, the push and pull of the negotiations between Marvel, DMG and China's state film censors just became the normal stuff of his day-to-day work. It was a really interesting sort of overtime chemistry that worked and became the reason why China allowed Iron Man 3 in, why they allowed it to be the biggest hit ever at that point, and why it allowed Marvel to become the most valuable entertainment IP on Earth in that market. This is how looking away and self-censorship became part of the chemistry, the sparks that ignited this China-Hollywood affair. Commercially, it worked. Iron Man 3 boosts Marvel's fortunes beyond their dreams. I mean, the movie was only supposed to make $700 million worldwide, and and our deal was based on those kind of projections, but the movie made $1.3 That was one of the most successful movies of all time. Chris and DMG Entertainment do well out of it too. We took this company that was worth maybe $50 million when U.S. when I got involved and um, over time because of Iron Man 3 and Looper and a lot of the stuff we were doing on a global basis, we went public on the Shenzhen and had a market cap at one point of $8 billion U.S. It was quite a, quite a ride. Iron Man 3 is a really important moment where we see that there's this it's this first big Marvel blockbuster in the era of the growth of Marvel blockbusters that brings together the Chinese market and the U.S. market in a, in a formal way. This is Anne Cocus, an academic who writes about China and Hollywood. So it's a milestone. And commercially, it's a hit. But interestingly, Iron Man 3 was critically panned by the People's Daily, China's state newspaper. And Chinese audiences didn't like how Dr. Wu was not really a fully formed character and was just clearly tacked on to the movie. Hollywood had given a lot, but it wasn't enough. So this is your first time in China. And yeah, it's very, uh, very exciting. I've been looking forward to coming here for a long time. And so this is, uh, this is like a dream come true for me. But um, I just, uh, people who know me back in America, I'm very... Uh, 
I'm very interested in, in all things uh, all things Chinese. I, I live a fairly Chinese life in America. Robert Downey Jr. isn't exactly clear about what he's referring to here. Apparently, he's into traditional Chinese medicine and kung fu. I don't think he's referring to life under Chinese Communist Party censorship, but he might be. I, um, I, I love your movies. Can you name some? Uh, well, yeah, I could probably name about 300 of them. How long do you have? <laughs> the Hollywood-China romance starts out a little bit awkward. Fast forward a few years, and now it's much clearer to everyone. Top Gun Maverick lost its Chinese investor. Cinema audiences in Taiwan are whooping with joy every time they see their flag on Tom Cruise's jacket. But in those intervening years, the self-censorship in Hollywood for the CCP has become part of the norm. It still feels like, for a studio, making the decision to you know put Dumbledore back in the closet in China... The the calculation becomes, well, do I risk three or four days of bad press in the U.S. to access the Chinese market? And the answer has been yes so far. And instinctively, it all feels wrong. Co-option on the CCP side, complicity on Hollywood's. But it's unclear now what the alternative can be. This is a story far bigger than Hollywood because the minute we run into ideology determining whether or not Western businesses can continue doing business with China. We're talking about studios. We're talking about Tesla. We're talking about Apple. We're talking about sports leagues. We're talking about Louis Vuitton. I mean, every conceivable Western sector is going to have to be answering for this if it tips into a political no-go zone. And I feel a bit confused about it all. On the one hand, there are over a billion people in China, on the other side of China's Communist Party's censorship rules, and we want to be open and interconnected. Is a little bit of self-censorship okay? Or do each of these tiny examples build up into something more problematic for democracies and also for people inside China? I've been in a fog about all this for weeks, and I kept getting stuck in this same loop until I saw a film at the Genesis Cinema in Mile End, London, in the middle of March this year, as part of the Hong Kong Film Festival in the UK. This film shunted everything into perspective for me. But before I tell you about it, there's another Hollywood superhero movie that came out a year after Iron Man 3 that I'd like to tell you about first. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. It's 2014 in Hong Kong and a giant silver transformer robot is glistening on the edge of Hong Kong's Victoria Harbour. Paramount Pictures are hosting their world premiere of Transformers 4, The Age of Extinction, in Hong Kong, where some of the film is set. The release is taking place at a sensitive time of year in Hong Kong, the anniversary of the territory's return to China from Britain, when China promised a one-country, two-systems approach and political autonomy for 50 years. For a couple of years before the Transformers 4 release date, a protest movement, known as the Umbrella Movement, had been active around that date. These protests were started by a group of secondary school students who were angry that references to the Tiananmen Square massacre had been removed from their school curriculum. I was there with a bunch of students and actually a bunch of Transformers fans. So they were all extremely excited about this. And I went to see the film in the IMAX version. So it was really in full relief. Hong Kong is being destroyed by giant robots. And if you watch the film today, there's this very curious scene where they cut to Beijing and the Beijing defense minister says, we will protect Hong Kong at all costs. And China shows up to save the day before the Americans do. And it was actually inserted into the script at the request of Chinese authorities. Warships or um, naval ships enter Victoria Harbor in Hong Kong, and they're, they're mainland naval ships that are designed to protect Hong Kong from 
an external threat, um, a national security threat in this case, uh, the threat of the transformers. So in some ways it's, it's very fanciful, um, but in other ways it really presents a vision of mainland national security control over Hong Kong. It felt like a moment where for me, the importance of Chinese government influence on Hollywood studio films crystallized. Cut to five years later, 2019. Now Victoria Harbour and the streets of Hong Kong are thrumming with protesters. They're in a battle with the CCP for the city's freedom. Hong Kong's pro-democracy movement took to the streets again today for a massive and peaceful march. An estimated 1.7 million people, a quarter of the territory's population, took part. In Hong Kong, hundreds of thousands of people have taken to the streets for a huge rally against a proposed extradition law. The law would allow suspects... Spokesman for the Hong Kong office of China's government condemned what he called the protesting thugs and promised they'd be punished. I would like to warn all these criminals, don't even misjudge the situation and mistake our restraint for weakness. Don't ever underestimate the firm resolve and the immense strength of the central government and the people of the whole country to maintain Hong Kong's prosperity and stability and safeguard the fundamental interests of the nation. So, in 2014, when Transformers was made, who knows to what extent people in Hollywood could have twigged that they were prefiguring a real message that the CCP would use again a few years later. A propaganda message. A fake news message against people trying to hold on to their freedom. It should come as no surprise that Chinese officials really control what audiences in China see, but they really control what audiences outside of China see. And only the shiny, glossy, developed version of China is shown to to foreign audiences. During those 2019 protests, Chris Fenton happened to be in Hong Kong. He's there as part of a congressional visit, and this time he's in a boardroom with Carrie Lam, Hong Kong's then chief executive, the person implementing, on Beijing's behalf, this extradition bill that sparked the protests. And Chris was hearing Carrie Lam's side of the story, and he sympathised with her. There was a part of me that thought she had the hardest job on earth because she had to placate Beijing and had a populace that she was in charge of that was very, very frustrated and upset. And then sitting with protesters was fascinating, too, because you learned a lot of the nuance of what they were frustrated about and sort of how the media was covering it, but then also really sort of what the underlying story was. It was startling when you saw pepper spray being sprayed on protesters, when you heard a protester talk about what their problems were, when you saw graffiti that said free Hong Kong on every street, that was quite daunting. Even up close in Hong Kong, it was hard for Chris to take in that a new, oppressive political reality was taking hold. But there was another filmmaker on the streets of Hong Kong in 2019, Kiwi Chow, and he was trying to get the protesters' side of the story out to the world. I was hoping to appeal to the world. The documentary not just for Hong Kong people to watch, but for the whole world to watch. Kiwi usually makes rom-coms, but over the years he'd been worried about the gradual ebbing away of Hong Kong's freedoms 
and the self-censorship in Hong Kong's film industry. Once the protests started, he decided to document them. I became the front line. I had to use this helmet to shield myself for a bit. My skull felt a shake. And I was the most scared then because I could feel the force. It came just like that. He was filming an impossible battle. Hong Kongers against the might of the CCP. The code word for going to protest was going to dream. This event relates back to the feeling movies give me, which is that you are not alone. You're not alone in this. When you come out and you see those actual people, you see the number of that. That energy is very powerful. If you ask me, it was really like a dream come true. One of the main protest slogans was Free Hong Kong, Revolution of Our Times. The protesters used this phrase because they felt that they were on the front line of a global struggle against the increasing rise of China's authoritarianism. Kiwi decided that Revolution of Our Times would be the title for his film. In early 2020, the protests were suppressed, the pandemic hit, and Hong Kong introduced a new national security law. Now, even to say those words, Revolution of Our Times, was illegal. This is what direct Chinese Communist Party censorship looks like. Merely being sympathetic towards the protesters of 2019 meant one might be convicted. That's very hard to swallow. If you were filming a documentary, it was already very dangerous and risky. Kiwi had to decide whether to drop his documentary about the protests and get on with his next rom-com, or risk prison and respond to what was happening around him. He decided to act. Self-censoring leads fear into one's heart. As in, everything you do, you'll be thinking left and right, fearing left and right. It's a tormenting thing. It's like being held by the neck. As a creative, you have this strong desire for freedom. The belief is the more freedom you have, the more wild your imagination can go, right? Thinking left and right, I think that's a stressful and fearful process. You're strangled and you're dead. He talked it through with his family, even with his seven-year-old son. I asked him this question. I said there's the potential of Dad getting arrested because of the movie Dad has filmed. And if arrested, Dad will have to be separated from him for a long time. Should Dad still pursue the movie? I didn't think he would answer me like this, but he said the Hong Kong government, after watching Dad's film, will become a good government again. When he put it like that, it filled me with hope. Kiwi decided to slip the film to a friend abroad to see if it could find an audience, like a message in a bottle. It's 2021, and China's Communist Party not only has influence over Hollywood studios, but also distributors and film festivals. So Kiwi is stunned when he hears that Cannes Film Festival has invited him to screen Revolution of Our Times. He was full of conflicting feelings. To have your film screened at Cannes is a dream for any filmmaker, but on the other hand, it's so high profile, it could lead to his arrest. Cannes had a plan. They were going to keep the screening totally secret and only announce it once it had taken place. So if nobody knew about it, it couldn't be stopped. So Kiwi decided to hunker down in Hong Kong and let Cannes screen the film. I will use an analogy. Psychologically, I prepared myself for Typhoon Level 10, which is the highest rating for a typhoon in Hong Kong. The screening was a success, and to date, Kiwi hasn't been arrested. 
but international sales for the film didn't come quick. When the Hong Kong Film Festival in the UK announced a screening of Revolution of Our Times, the box office website crashed, the phone didn't stop ringing, dozens of people lined up outside for tickets. The Genesis Cinema in East London told me they've never seen anything like it. I managed to get a press ticket, and I watched it with around 500 Hong Kongers. Before the movie began, the audience were chanting the protest slogans, Free Hong Kong, Revolution of Our Times. And once the film started, the audience began to weep. And as the film showed the protesters being beaten by official police and by hired gangs, it felt like a warning, as though the film was saying, this is the logical conclusion, the extreme end of what can happen when you start giving in to authoritarianism. This is what it looks like to lose your freedom. Don't give it up. All of us got smacked in the nose at some point and realized, wait a minute, this is not in the best interest of the West or our allies in, in the United States of America. It's actually to the detriment of our long-term health. It wasn't at the protests in Hong Kong where Chris got his smack in the nose. It was a month later, back home in L.A. I was standing on a soccer sideline watching my kid play soccer. and There was like a timeout and I looked down at my phone and somebody forwarded me this tweet from Daryl Morey, the GM of the Houston Rockets. Fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong, or something like that. The Houston Rockets, a basketball team. I looked at it and I go, geez, who's Daryl Morey? And I realized he was the GM of the Houston Rockets. And I said, oh my God, he just took the side of Hong Kong and the protesters. That's going to be terrible for the NBA. And the dad standing next to me said, well, why is that? Like, why he should be able to say that? And I was like, yeah, he should, but... He can't because the NBA's biggest market outside of the U.S. is China. And he's like, wow, that's crazy. I say, well, just wait. You'll see. And then over the next 24 hours, we saw it unfold where like China just got ripping mad at the NBA and shut them down and all the businesses and the partners fled and everything. And for some reason, which is hard to explain, it was the NBA's cravenness towards China, the deletion of Daryl Morey's tweet and the response to that in the media which becomes the moment when the scales fall from Chris's eyes. From that trip, when I got back, and it spilled into the moment a month later when Daryl Morey tweeted that and all the geopolitical controversy occurred around the NBA. For me, it was a buildup of that straw that broke the camel's back rather than one simple moment. Because even with that fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong tweet, that didn't wake me up out of the trance. It was actually watching over the next several days, all of this controversy erupt and all the criticism erupt. And that was when it started to all come together for me. And I watched sort of the bumbling and fumbling of of their response to that, the criticism about that. And I realized looking at myself and self-reflecting going, oh my God, I'm just as bad as what everybody thinks the NBA is bad at. Imagine doing 20 years of something that you thought was the right path and then suddenly realizing maybe it wasn't. That's a very difficult thing to digest for anybody. Chris had been on a hopeful adventure in China. Up to this point, he'd always defended his decision to work in the interests of the CCP. Now he was questioning it. I don't think it's a toxic romance, but I do think it's in divorce proceedings. Last year, at the World Box Office, the second biggest film was The Battle for Chengjin Lake. It's a Chinese propaganda film about the Korean War. 
One Chinese film critic I spoke to told me that when she gave it an unfavorable review, the popular film platform she wrote for was temporarily shut down. China doesn't need Hollywood anymore. The CCP can create their own Hollywood-style movies now and control the content and the critical response. Chris fits the bill of the American hero. He went down the wrong path, discovered what was at stake, and now he's trying to make up for it. There's nobody in the engagement of China, whether a business person, a you know, a, a political leader, a critic, a journalist, a citizen, etc., that's not aware of how bad China is to continue this this engagement the way it is, how bad it is for the long term health of democracy in in the West. No one's unaware. It's just a question of how much. Conflicting interests do they have that allows them to look the other way? Hollywood knows how to do heroes. It's villains that it doesn't have worked out. It's as though the Dream Factory doesn't know quite where to cast the shadows. In Iron Man Three, the villain of the piece says a line: "Give evil a face, a Gaddafi, a Bin Laden, the Mandarin, and you hand people a target." The twist in the Iron Man Three's plot is that the baddie isn't the Mandarin at all. The real villains are the guys controlling the Mandarin, the American tech capitalist and the vice president of the USA, the corrupt Western political and business elite. It's almost as though the scriptwriters are trying to put on the screen something of what's going on behind the scenes. But Anne Cockers thinks that if the writers are trying to be self-reflective, they've mislocated the source of the problem. It's kind of the quintessential irony for the individualist capitalist to be the the major villain in a Hollywood studio film. So that that shows a certain lack of self awareness about the the role of U.S. film studios and U.S. media conglomerates in the in the global economic ecosystem. She's making the point that maybe it's not entirely fair to blame the individuals when actually there's a problem in the system. Which is that multinational conglomerates are designed to put profit above everything. I think the capitalistic instinct you had was you could put your foot in two different boats, and the boats would stay close enough that you could avoid getting wet. And I think over time, the boats now are separating, and it's becoming obvious to almost anyone doing business there in China that you're going to have to pick one of the boats to stand in. What I've come to see is that China and Hollywood's love story and potential separation isn't a story about a clash between two different ideologies. It's actually about clashes within the West, the tensions that exist between free speech and free market. By exacerbating these tensions, China's Communist Party is shining a light on some of the fault lines and cracks in liberal democracy and capitalism. Perhaps one day, those years when China and Hollywood came together to try to make movies with the broadest possible appeal, will look like a hopeful, even if naive and problematic moment in U.S.-China collaboration. But I hope not. I hope that Hollywood and China will find better ways to collaborate and make movies together, but in ways that strengthen democracy rather than bend to authoritarianism. And Chris Fenton is on the case.
This episode was written and reported by me, Poppy Sebag Montefiore. It was produced by Joanna Humphreys. Sound design is by Tom Burchill. And additional reporting and production was done by Phoebe Davis and Ching Wong. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. We're supposed to learn from our own mistakes, but other people's errors can be instructive too. From efforts to control the weather that went disastrously awry, to the untimely death of the Segway boss, history is a treasure trove of mishaps and meltdowns that can teach us all. I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that mines the greatest fiascos of the past for their most valuable lessons. Listen to Cautionary Tales wherever you get your podcasts.